You're listening to a sermon from Harvest Plains Church in Castleton, North Dakota. This teaching is meant to encourage you in your faith, but not replace the preaching and accountability that should only come from your own local church. That said, we hope this sermon helps you know God more by simply listening to what he has to say in his word. Well, uh, as you may have heard, and as I was just praying about uh, over the weekend, uh, there was a deadly outbreak of severe storms that ravaged the middle of our country. One of the hardest hit places was the state of Kentucky. Their death toll was reported to be north of 70 people, and it may actually end up exceeding 100. Other places that were hit included Tennessee, Illinois, Arkansas, Texas, and there were others. In Illinois, there was even a wall the length of a football field which collapsed inside an Amazon warehouse with dozens of workers inside when the wall came down. Maybe you saw pictures of that on the news, but uh, the storm was truly uh, devastating. You look at the the pictures, and it's just overwhelming. You have uh, communities that look like they were turned upside down and inside out with fallen trees, toppled homes, and debris scattered all over, making it even difficult to imagine what that community looked like before the storm went through. Um, Now, why do I, I bring all of that up? It's just interesting to me that this week we see, you know, a big tragedy like the storm strike just after we decided to go into a series on benevolence. And so last week we spent our time just really talking about the importance of benevolence. If that's an unfamiliar word to you, all we really mean by benevolence is that um, we come into people's lives in times of need, in times of desperation. And Uh, You know, as a church, one of my great desires is that we would grow not only in our understanding of God's word, that we would properly worship God from our hearts, but that that would lead to uh, hearts that reach out in practical ways to meet the needs of suffering and hurting people. And what a a good reminder uh, that we have this week that as a church, uh, it's, you know, we want to be ready for when disaster comes into our community. Uh, you know, this is just, this is life in a fallen world, isn't it? I mean, these are the kind of things that happen. The unexpected happens. And it, it happens in the form of tornadoes and earthquakes and hurricanes. But, of course, it, it oftentimes happens in other aspects of our lives as well. It, it happens when a family member dies. It happens when... A vehicle breaks down or is wrecked in an accident. It happens when someone is let go from uh, a job. The The list could go on, but these are things that happen because of living in a world marred by sin. And uh, so this week, being part two of our series on benevolence, what I want to focus on is really how we particularly Harvest Plains Church, want to care for those in need. Last week, we looked at why the church ought to get involved in benevolence and caring for those in need. This week, we are assuming, hey, this is our responsibility, right? We've already looked at the proof. We've already been reminded of why we need to be about it. But the question still remains, well, how does the Bible 
instruct us to get into the lives of people, and how does it instruct us to care for people? So if you want to think about it like this, this week we're looking at the who, the when, and the how of the church's benevolence practices, and we're going to look at that by pointing out really four principles from God's Word about how the church ought to practice benevolence. Four principles from God's Word about how the church ought to practice benevolence. And, uh, you know, I say the church because, you know, we all have a desire to help people in our own individual lives, and that's great. But corporately, we look at the New Testament, and the church has a responsibility to organize itself to meet the needs of those in a community, particularly in its own congregation. So there could have been so many more principles I could have provided, uh, but I've tried to get them down to four. So what are these four principles? First principle is this. Church benevolence prioritizes Christian care. Church benevolence prioritizes Christian care. Now, as you know, there really are an endless amount of needs in the world, aren't there? I mean, this week, you're going to notice things, maybe it's in your family, maybe it's in the lives of your friends, maybe it's in the lives of coworkers, but in your own lives this week, you are going to encounter a whole bunch of ways that people are hurting. And then on top of that, you're going to go home, you're going to turn on the TV, and then you're going to see a uh, hundred other needs, right, just from today. And the question that kind of goes through our mind every time we're confronted with one of these needs is, you know, should I get involved? And if so, how? Right? Those are the questions that are especially fresh on our minds when we encounter a need. Should I get involved? And if so, How? Well, the church certainly needs to ask the same question because there are an endless amount of opportunities to help. There also um, is a limited amount of resources to help, right? So we kind of think to ourselves, how do we as a church make sure to, in in the wisdom of Christ, um, properly take the resources Christ has entrusted to us and make sure that they're faithfully caring for God's people? Well, that's why these principles are all here. And um, the first principle, as I mentioned, is that we prioritize Christian care. To see this, um, open your Bibles and turn over to Galatians chapter 6, and you'll want to just... uh, you know, maybe keep a marker in Galatians because we're going to come back to it again. But I want you to see here, uh, of course, one thing I pointed out from Galatians that's so unique is here we have a book that's primarily known for its articulation of the one true gospel, that there is salvation only through faith alone and Jesus Christ alone, and salvation is not accomplished through keeping the law, that can't happen because all the law brings to us is death and destruction and the condemnation of God. So Paul in this letter articulates there's only one gospel from God, and it is grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. But as he talks in this letter, he also points out at various times his desire to see the church help those who are hurting and suffering and helping the poor. That he himself as an apostle, he says at one point, 
was commissioned by the other apostles to go to the Gentiles, but the one thing they told him before he went is, make sure you care for the poor. And Paul says, hey, I am eager to do that. Well, as he closes out his letter coming towards the end of chapter 6, he says this in verse 10, So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone and especially to those who are of the household of faith. The household of faith is clearly a reference to Christians. Therefore, even though Paul says we ought to care for everyone, he really does zero in and say, as you care for people, you better make sure of all people that you don't neglect the household of faith. Don't neglect your fellow believer. You must care for them, and you must make sure that you focus on them. And I don't think that this is hard to understand why Paul would instruct the church to do this, um, but let me provide an illustration to drive home the point. I mean, let's just imagine for a moment, I realize that not everybody has kids, but let's just imagine for a moment, okay, you all have kids or you at least have one kid, right? Now imagine that your kids uh, suddenly one day, they start to go over to the neighbor's house around mealtime, right? And it's because they can't find food in the house and you're not cooking meals, right? Now, if you have a good neighbor, you know, they're probably okay with that for a couple of meals, right? But after a while where you've got multiple days going on, maybe even multiple weeks going on, and the kids keep showing up to their house and eating all of their food, what are they soon to think, what are they soon to think about you as a parent? They're going to go do... Do you not love your kids? Do you not care for your kids? Do you not want to provide for your kids? Right, Your reputation with your neighbors is going to go in the gutter pretty quickly. And certainly, um, that's going to extend probably along your street, maybe across your community, what have you. But when the church does not take care of the saints inside of it, that's the kind of message that's sent in the world. People look at the church and go, doesn't that church care? I mean, they don't even take care of the people that attend church there. What is that to say about the gospel? If we are to be marked by the love of Christ, then certainly that starts in the household of God. And when we, one thing I pointed out last week is when we do this, when we truly care for people in practical ways, Right, It says something, and it says something about the sincerity of our love. It, it is a proof of our love, and certainly it sends an important message to people outside our church. John thirteen thirty five, John wrote, By this all people will know that you are my disciples. Jesus said this, if you have love for one another. So when we take care of people in a radical, consuming, involved kind of way, what is the outside world to gather? Wow, they're different. They're different than the world. Well, what is it about these people? And of course, that is where we point to Jesus Christ, and the only person who would give us a reason to care about anyone outside of ourselves, the only one who would give us a heart and to love as Christ has loved. So we need to certainly address those first with needs inside the church. As I say that, now, though, I need to come back and say that is not all that we care for. Those are not the only people we care for. We could point to Matthew chapter 5, verse 42. 
we covered this in our series in the Gospel of Matthew, but you might remember that there Jesus said this. He says, give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. So in this teaching here, this seems to me to be a situation where a stranger or somebody who you don't know actually comes to you and and they're wanting something from you. Uh, I take this to mean that if some stranger comes to us, then we ought to serve them too. Uh, I don't think that this means that we are to cover uh, everyone's full need when they come with something, but Uh, I do think it means that we need to help with something. And so I think the church's benevolence policy must be prepared for a variety of situations. We need to, as a church, think through how we care for believers and those in our church, but we also need to consider how we care for the unbeliever and the stranger. And so uh, one thing that uh, was our practice when I was in our church in Michigan is, you know, we... You know, we were like 20 minutes west of Detroit. Uh, As you might know, Detroit doesn't have a great reputation. Um, And there are a lot of broken communities there that have been severely impacted for different economic reasons, Um, especially while we were there. Uh, It's doing much better now, but on a regular basis, we would get people coming into our church almost every week. And I, as the associate pastor, would be fielding these, um, you know, fielding these needs and so I would have a folder there where I would talk to these individuals about how we would want to help them not only you know materially but I would try and share the gospel with them and for them just sitting down with me we would try and provide them a gift card of some sort to go out and buy food but it was never our you know policy to meet everyone's need to its full extent, especially if they came from outside of the church. But we do have a responsibility, I think, to do something. So the church must think through how we are to do that. Um, and, you know, this was, this was, frankly, this idea of caring for those in the church first. This was the model for Israel, too. For Israel, they were first to care for their own people. It's why God said in Deuteronomy 15, 11, Therefore I command you, you shall open wide your hand to your brother, to the needy, and to the poor in your land. So they were to do that for their fellow Israelite first, but then they also were to care for the stranger or the sojourner. Given then that this was the case, another question to be asked, is the church to help everyone indiscriminately, I obviously just tip my hand to that, and the answer is no. So then the next question is, how is it that we are to determine what needs we meet and how far we go in meeting those needs? That brings me then to our second principle today for the church's benevolence, and it is this, church benevolence helps the most needy and vulnerable. Church benevolence helps the most needy and vulnerable. And to see this, I especially need you to turn in your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 5 uh, because there's a pretty lengthy section there that we, um, we need to work through. 1 Timothy chapter 5. Follow along with me, if you would, beginning in verse 9. Paul writes here, He says, let a widow be enrolled if she is not less than 60 years of age, having been the wife of one husband and having a reputation for good works, if she has brought up children, has shown hospitality, has washed the feet of the saints, 
has cared for the afflicted, and has devoted herself to every good work, but refuse to enroll younger widows, for when their passions draw them away from Christ, they desire to marry, and so incur condemnation for having abandoned their former faith. Besides that, they learn to be idlers, going about from house to house, and not only idlers, but also gossips and busybodies, saying what they should not. So, I would have younger widows marry, bear children, manage their households, and give the adversary no occasion for slander. For some have already strayed after Satan. If any believing woman has relatives who are widows, let her care for them. Let the church not be burdened so that it may care for those who are truly widows. Now, the interesting thing about this passage of Scripture is I think it really, in all of the New Testament, uh, this is the most extensive section that helps us understand how we are to care for people. Obviously, it's dealing specifically with this issue of widows, but I think what you can do is you can look at these instructions given specifically for widows, and you can derive some some principles and some questions to ask when you encounter various needs that would apply to a variety of situations you know, because there are all sorts of crises and emergencies that people come into that don't always involve someone who is a widow. And so as you think about this, I really am going to give you three important questions and that the church ought to ask itself whenever someone comes to it for help. Here are three tests or three questions to ask. First, what is a person's income earning ability? What is their income-earning ability? In verse 9, Paul clearly says not to enroll someone who is younger than 60 years of age. Now, we don't know how much wiggle room there may have been uh, to this policy because we aren't given any exceptions and we don't see it practiced. But here's what's clear. Paul clearly prioritized care for older people. And I think we can think of a whole number of reasons why this was the case. Uh, if you are older, certainly you can't perform as much work because you just don't have the strength. If you're older, you are likely not going to remarry and find someone else who can help take care of you. If you're older, if you don't have children by the time you're 60, you're probably not going to have any children who uh, are going to take care of you later on in life. So there's all sorts of good reasons for why we need to make sure to take care of those who are older. So that's the first question to ask. What is their income earning ability? Second question then that we should ask is this. What is their reputation and their lifestyle like? What is their reputation and their lifestyle like? Now this is... Um, this is a question I think that it challenges you the younger that you are. Uh, I can recall taking a trip to D.C. And, uh, you know, you go to bigger communities like D.C. and you just see homelessness everywhere, right? You can't go on any block, it seems, in D.C. without encountering multiple homeless people. And honestly, your heart, your heart sinks and your heart goes out to these people because they are truly in desperate situations, Right? But if you walk around and you just start handing out money to everybody on the street, does it actually help them? No, it, it actually doesn't help them. It's kind of counterintuitive, but you think like they're hurting and broken, I give them money right away? No. The Bible actually says that we should evaluate what people's lives are like before we give them money. And... Uh, I want you to think about this, okay? I mean, consider the instructions that are given regarding what widows to care for. 
uh, Paul says that these kind of qualities were to characterize the widows that the church helped. Uh, first, uh, they were to be known for their purity, um, having been the wife of one husband. Uh, I don't think that means that they uh, were not allowed to be cared for if they happened to have a spouse who died and they remarried and that spouse died. But the, the idea here is that they truly were a one-man woman, that they faithfully cared for the person that they were married to. And certainly if we are getting involved in the lives of men, we're asking the same question, uh, are they one-woman men? Are they men of devotion, of faithfulness, of purity, Right? Uh, secondly, though, uh, whatever widows were helped were also to be known for this. They were to be known for their loyalty and devotion to Christ's church and Christ's people. Now, there was to be a clear pattern of caring for the saints, of washing their feet, of caring for the people of God, of being about the Lord's business, of, be, of actively seeking and pursuing the Lord and encouraging those uh, around them to do the same. And, uh, and so we, as a church, we want to get involved in the lives of people who we know will genuinely be helped by the assistance provided. Now, what's interesting is, as you look at this, uh, one of the things that Paul points out is that when they helped certain people who weren't really in need, what was the fruit of it? Well, he actually points out that these people are busybodies. Uh, he actually points out that this uh, support the church is giving them is enabling some people uh, to actually live a sinful and faithless lifestyle. And so we, we don't want to do that as a church. We don't want to enable faithlessness. Uh, we want to encourage faithfulness. And so it's important whoever is helped and that they exhibit a pattern of pursuing Christ, of living an obedient lifestyle. Um, so much that we could say about this, but, um, but it's important that we apply biblical discernment so that we do not become really those that enable sinful living. Um, I, wa I want us to think for a moment about the prodigal son. Obviously, many of you are very, very familiar, one of the most familiar passages in all of Scripture, right? But we know the son, he, he takes his father's inheritance, and he goes out, and he lives a, a reckless life, and eventually he realizes his need, and he comes back, and he realizes life's a lot better with his father, and so he throws him feet, himself as the, at the feet of his father and asks for forgiveness, Right? Interesting when you read that passage that it was the fact that he came to this point in life where people were no longer giving him anything that helped lead him to the place of realizing, oh man, there's a problem. And it was in that place of desperation where then he goes back to his father. To point this out, I want us to, um, I want to read some verses here from Luke chapter 15. We're told, starting in verse 14, And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. 
verse 17. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. So here's the deal. Sometimes what someone needs is really to come face to face with the desperation of their situation. And the more that we enable them and we provide for their basic necessities of life, the less that they're realizing, you know what, there's an issue in their heart that needs to be addressed as well. And, uh, and so we want to be careful, uh, again, how we give assistance, that we don't help someone remain in an unrepentant and sinful lifestyle. Uh, it should be clear, but the assistance of the church is really not for the unwilling. It's for the unable. Okay? The assistance of the church is not for the unwilling. It is for the unable. There is a system set up um, specifically to help the unwilling. It's called socialism. You may have heard of it. Okay? This is where the government steals... I'll say steals, steals the money of hardworking people and rewards those who don't do anything for themselves. It says, we're going to take all the resources, all the money, and we're going to make sure that the outcome is the same with this money so that everybody gets the same amount, no matter what they've done, no matter how much education they have, no matter how hard they've worked, no matter how faithful they've been, we're going to take the money and we're just going to evenly distribute it out to everything. And... If you don't know this, and you're still in, like, I don't know, that youthful place where you're kind of, like, entertaining the idea of socialism, socialism is wicked. It is a wicked and awful and evil system. Because what it does is it rewards laziness, it rewards faithlessness, and, frankly, um, it, uh, uh, it, it punishes faithfulness. It really does. And we don't want to do that with the church's money. And one thing that should be clear when you look at Scripture is how often laziness uh, is confronted and it is spoken against. Particularly, Paul writes about it in 1 Thessalonians and 2 Thessalonians. Let me read you a couple verses there. Paul says this in 1 Thessalonians 4, chapter, chapter 4, verse 10. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more and to aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs, and to work with your hands as we instructed you, so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. So here's God's desire for each and every human being, that you would live a boring and generous life, that you'd get up, you'd love the Lord, you'd work hard, you'd work yourself to the bone, You'd go to sleep at night, you'd earn an income, you'd take care of your family, and you'd also try and help those who are in genuine need around you. That's the simple pattern of Scripture. Let me read you another text. That's 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 7. For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us, because we were not idle when we were with you. Paul's saying, of himself, we didn't just sit there and live, you know, dependent on the people around us. Even while we were ministering among you, we worked. He says, we did not eat anyone's bread without paying for it, 
But with toil and labor we worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. It was not because we do not have that right, but to give, but to give you in ourselves an example to imitate. For even when we were with you, we would give you this command. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. Principle of scripture. If you're unwilling to work, you're going to be unable to eat. And the church must make sure that it does not help you eat if you're unwilling to work. Paul says, for we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. Now such persons we commend and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. So as we help people, here's the big idea. We don't want them to become dependent on the church or on anyone else. As such, here's the third question I want to give you, and it connects really well to this idea of not being dependent on the church. But the question that we also need to ask is this. Uh, does this person have family who can take care of them? Does this person have family who can help take care of them? Notice the instruction of verse 16 uh, when we're in First Timothy here. Now, Paul actually speaks to women in the church, and he says to them, Listen, if you have relatives who are widows, this is what I want of you. I want you to take care of them, okay, so that the church is not burdened. And, and you know, I, I think that this, um, this idea can be widened out so that I, I think that one thing we need to do is that we need to help people uh, wherever help exists, particularly through things like social security or government assistance. The church ought to help people with legitimate needs gain access to such resources so that they are not dependent on the church. And, you know, this is where we need to make a careful distinction. You know, the first century church, things were a little different than they are today, right? The first century church... Uh, you know, you didn't have a 401k. You didn't have something like disability insurance or social security or unemployment or what have you, right? And so the church was all that a person really had. And because these programs are available and they do exist to help people in genuine need, the church should help people become connected to what is out there. And this is where the church comes in. I think the church comes in especially to help the people who fall through the cracks. Again, that are in legitimate need. So that is second principle. Now let's look at our third principle for church benevolence, and it is this. Number three, church benevolence ought to be facilitated by the local church. It ought to be facilitated by the local church. And as I say that, uh, one thing that uh, I want to point out is that there's several different models for doing benevolence. It seems that one growing model is what we might call a small group or a life group only model. And uh, as I've given a lot of thought to this, there are some strengths to this model, but there's also some, I would say, significant weaknesses. But the idea here in a life group model is that, well, the church is not going to have any sort of like formal way of helping people. We're just going to encourage life groups to take care of people who have needs. And as those needs arise, of course, in a life group setting, everybody knows each other, they know the needs, and the life group kind of pools their resources and takes care uh, of those that are in need. But again, I think that there are some pretty significant weaknesses in this model. Um, for starters, certainly there is a disproportionate uh, number of needs in certain groups to the amount of people able to help meet those needs. 
Uh, for instance, we could take the college life group, right? There's not exactly, there's probably a lot more needs in the college life group. Uh, there's also not a lot of income in the college life group, right? So, uh, you know, you have that kind of disparity among the life groups. But you also have the risk of people in a life group, I think, becoming taken advantage of. Because in a life group, you develop close relationships with people. Uh, obviously, someone in a life group who comes and says, hey, I have a need, you feel compelled to help that person. Okay, part of that is good, right? But if that person keeps coming back time and time and time again saying, hey, I have a need, what's that going to do to the relationships of those in the life group? People are eventually going to feel that they are getting taken advantage of. And so while I think it's great to try and meet needs, I, I think life groups are the place where we discover uh, needs the fastest. I think what we are hoping to do here is we will have someone designated as our benevolence person so that as you encounter needs in your life group, you go to this person and say, hey, so-and-so is going through this. They, they have these kind of bills. How can we get involved and help them? And from that point forward then, our deacon of this benevolence ministry will come alongside them. They'll investigate what needs are there. Uh, they will work with that person. And uh, we as a church will hopefully provide them uh, with, everything that they, um, with everything that they need in that situation. Um, so church benevolence ought to be facilitated by the local church. And, you know, we, we, frankly, we see this. We see this all through Scripture where the church is actually facilitating um, taking care of people. Uh, we're told in Acts chapters 4, 5, and 6 uh, of this pattern. In Acts chapter 4, you might recall, we looked at how right after Pentecost, when the church is born, here believers are in Jerusalem, and it says in Acts chapter 4, verse 42, Excuse me, Acts chapter 2. They devoted themselves to the fellowship, and we're told in verse 44, all who believed were together, had all things in common, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. But what they were doing is they were bringing the money to the apostles, and the apostles then were responsible for making sure that the money given was matching the need that existed. And, uh, and so it's an important ministry, one, I think, that should be facilitated and organized, and we see that pattern. And obviously, given the instructions that First Timothy 5, uh, where Paul actually gives instructions for how to care for the widows, we just see, again, the church is facilitating that as it's going on. And as you do this, here are some of the benefits when the church does things this way. Uh, first, I think it ensures genuine needs are met because the church carefully discerns who is in the most need. Uh, second, it allows for giving to remain anonymous when you give to the church. Uh, your left hand is able to better not know what your right hand is doing. A third, it ensures a process of trust and confidentiality because those who oversee this ministry uh, have a proven history of trustworthiness and that they are people who uh, genuinely are, are going to do their best uh, to handle the money in a wise way and not just give it out to anyone. And I guess I'll throw a non-biblical benefit in there as well in that 
when we do things this way, it provides greater impact in giving since when you donate to the church, you get a tax benefit by giving to a 501c3. Again, a non-biblical benefit. Just thought I'd throw that in there. So that, that is the third principle of church benevolence. And now let's look at the fourth and final principle of church benevolence. Fourth, church benevolence must not overtake faithfulness in other budgetary matters. And uh, what I want to ultimately point out here is that the church has a lot of financial responsibilities, right? Yes, we have a responsibility to give to those in need, but we also have clearly expressed responsibilities in other financial matters too. And that um, includes taking care of the salaries of pastors and elders, as well as helping send and support missionaries. Uh, Without a doubt, those are two very high priorities for the local church. In fact, and I said we were going to come back to Galatians. If you still have that page marked, you can go back there. But before verse 10 in chapter 6, when Paul says, let us do good to everyone, especially to those who are of the household of faith, I want you to just back up to verses 6 and 7. And because there, Paul actually says, let the one who is taught the word Share all good things with the one who teaches. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked for whatever one sows, that will he also reap. And so Paul is saying, make sure that those who care for your souls, make sure who, those who teach you the word of God, you need to take care of them as well. He also articulates this in 1 Timothy 5, verses 17 and 18. He says, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. So there's this principle in scripture that those who sow spiritual truth and good into your own lives should be supported with your material goods in their work. Um, And I'm not saying that because I'm the pastor up here, okay? Okay. this is just the priorities of Scripture. And obviously we can add to that. Uh, we don't know what their you know, expenses look like for buildings, but we know you've got you to gotta pay to keep the lights on. It's important that we have a space for people to gather. Um, this, this moment right here, uh, this is great that we get to enjoy it. It costs some money to do it, and we need to make sure that we have a place to meet and gather uh, if, if such place does not exist and we get kicked out of here, then I guess we'll try and look for a Quonset and maybe some farmer will lend us some space to meet. But we do need to keep the lights on and uh, pay rent, and, and all of this is important. Uh, so many other principles, like I said, that we could go through here. But I wanted to do this series again because I want our church to grow in how we care for those and know practically Because I think a lot of Christians are confused. How do we get involved in the lives of people? And what are the principles that Scripture gives us in caring for those around us? If you want to explore more of this topic, I would commend this resource to you. I wish I would have had this book sooner. You know, I was like on uh, the Master's Seminary alumni Facebook page, and I'm like, hey, have any of you guys covered the subject of benevolence? And somebody said, yeah, we read this book, and it really helped us out. The title of it is Guide to Benevolence Giving for Church 
and family, helping the needy God's way. I literally got it yesterday in the mail. It could have improved the sermon had I gotten it earlier, but um, I can already tell in reading it this is a great resource, and I would uh, commend it to you if you are interested in learning more about the topic. All that said, as I introduced last week, in order to put this into practice right now, here's what we're trying to do in the month of December. Uh, We want you to help us make benevolence an active ministry of this church. And you can do that in two different ways. First, you can do that by giving uh, to the Saints Relief Fund. If you drop a check in the offering box on Sunday mornings with the phrase Saints Relief Fund in the memo, uh, you can give that way, or you can give on our website. And on our website, we actually have a little drop-down menu on our giving site that says Saints Relief Fund. So that's the first way that you can help make this vision of benevolence a reality. The second way, though, is helping us identify those with needs. Uh, Because here's the deal. Oftentimes, even those with needs don't always articulate them. And maybe you know somebody who could really use some help right now. Uh, In our weekly email that we're sending out, and Lord willing, we'll put a form up on our website as well. Uh, But we want you to be able to access that application. It's not even so much an application as it is just gathering some basic uh, pieces of information, name, need, how you became aware of it, and then we'll take that and we'll follow up. And our hope is that uh, even before Christmas, we'll be able to take uh, resources from the Saints Relief Fund. And we know Christmas is a time when um, some families are really hurting a lot, and we would love to come alongside them during this season and really just express uh, the hope of the gospel um, so those, uh, those are the practical ways to get involved. Um, and I hope that this is an encouragement for you. Um, the truth is, is that we're a family, right? I mean, that's, that's what results when you place your faith in Jesus Christ. That all of a sudden, through faith in Jesus Christ, yes, you are saved from sin. Yes, you are reconciled to God. But you're also put in a family that is there to take care of of you, that we are here to take care of one another. And by God's grace, this would be my hope that in the, in the next year, in the next two years, in the next five years, that increasingly the reputation of Harvest Plains Church in our community is that people would recognize we are a place that is willing to go to the deepest, darkest, and most desperate places to help those in need. Amen? Thank you so much for listening. We hope this sermon encourages you as you go about your week. If you're in Castleton or even the Fargo-Moorhead area, come check us out. Our website is harvestplainschurch.org. That's harvestplainschurch.org. Thanks again, and we hope you'll tune in next week.